Okay, Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, for, the, for the last few months, as I said, we've been tracking uh, the thoughts of the wisest man who ever lived concerning mainly the meaning of life. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon sort of began his autobiography, and we have uh, walked through uh, these verses together over the last number of weeks. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Solomon explained how he tried to find meaning uh, and satisfaction through every a type of pursuit. And, of course, we do the same thing, and people around us in our lives are doing the same thing every day, trying to find meaning in things such as intellectualism and academics, uh, in what we know and, and how we feel or what we feel in our experiences, uh, in subjective things, uh, in what we have, in the material things that we own. People are doing this, and, and sometimes we are, we are guilty, even as believers, still trying to find some sort of satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in these things. Uh, then in chapter 2, verse, verses 12, really down through verse 26, Solomon said essentially that it is better to be smart than dumb. Uh, so he's not promoting foolishness. He says it's better to be smart than dumb, and it is better to be moral than to be immoral. And yet at the end, we all end up in a coffin, Right, So he brings up this issue of death, a topic uh, that we looked at briefly, but also one that we'll re- uh, return to uh, a number of times in this particular series. Uh, it's something that he brings up on a number of different uh, occasions. And he says essentially this, that death trumps wisdom, uh, death trumps uh, wealth, and yet the hope that we have is that God trumps death. Uh, and so he talks about that at the end of the chapter uh, we also uh, made this statement or said that the only person who is really prepared to live is a person who is p- prepared to die. So it's really, it's really learning to view life uh, through these realities, uh, through the fact that we're all going to stand before God. In fact, it becomes the conclusion of the matter of the book, that we are to live life, you might even say, without restraint as long as you can live life without regret. So you can live life and enjoy life and the things of life as long as you can live without regret, which means you need to to know that in all that you do, that you will ultimately stand before God and you'll give an account. And if you can stand before God with a clear conscience, then enjoy life. So there's this balance, this tension that we see throughout the book. Um, And we'll even see some of that again this morning. So this this morning we're going to look into the place where uh, many folks don't want to look. Uh, I don't know if you have one of these places in your home, but, but you may have a place in your house that you don't like to look. How many of you have the drawer? Any of you have the drawer? <laughs> Jeff has the drawer. <laughs> Why is she pointing to him? Does Betty Ann not have a drawer? No? Okay. <laughs> She's the one person. <laughs> Any of you have that drawer? You're just like, you kind of pull it out, and you, you know you've know you got to open it to find the thing, but you don't really want to pull the whole thing out because you're afraid it's all going to dump out, and then you can hear stuff. We have one of those drawers you pull out, and as you pull it out, you can hear the things falling over the backside of the drawer into the cabinet below, that kind of thing. For some of you, it's a trunk. Uh, You don't want to look in the trunk. For some of you ladies, it is a purse, right? I mean, you just sort of reach down in there, and you don't want to look. It's a a nasty place. I saw... (laughs) That there was actually, you know, there's research on this. They, said it, 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 they, they tested a kitchen sink and a bathroom and a lady's purse and found there was more bacteria in a lady's purse. 
So uh, not not very encouraging. And that and, and, and that and that hand sanitizer stuff has the most bacteria on it, the bottle itself, than any other thing in the purse. Makes sense, right? Because when you go to grab the bottle to clean your hands, right, everything that's on your hands gets on the bottle. Okay. So this is the place where many folks don't want to look. Um, it's like that closet or that drawer, or that purse or that trunk. And even though we may not want to look there, it continues to nag us, this particular thing. And the reason that we avoid it is because we, we don't want to make a decision about it or because we don't want to deal with the reality of it. So what is this thing that Solomon brings up that will not go away? It is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Let's read chapter 3, verse 1. We'll go down through verse 15. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has, set, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God." I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. So here we might say in in chapter 3, Solomon takes sort of a, a turn, if you will, up until chapter 2, verse 23, God is only mentioned one time uh, up to that particular point, and yet he is referred to eight times in chapter 3 alone. So let's think for a moment before we jump in here to this, uh, this uh, particularly his first eight verses. What, what is the sovereignty of God? What is the sovereignty of God? Plainly stated, it means that God is in control of all things. God is in control of all things. Uh, let me just give you some passages here to sort of frame, frame this up for us. First Chronicles chapter 29, uh, verse 11. David said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all things. Job 42, verse 2, Job answered and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, can be stopped. Psalm 115, verse 3, 
but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? <laughs> Good question. When I do something, who can, who can, who can make it different? Who can, who can reverse the decision once I've made the decision? Uh, he goes on, Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands? Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill come forth? Good and ill. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. This is not Daniel speaking. This is actually uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He says in verse 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Uh, In the New Testament, we have other other passages, just to name a couple here, we have Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, a statement about the the overall work of God in governing everything by his good and sovereign will. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 11, in him, Christ, also we, we as Christians have obtained an inheritance. This is something we've obtained, it's past tense, uh, we have we have realized we have we have achieved we do possess we have in our possession an inheritance why because God has made it so he says in him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will well, there's just there's just no there's just no other way around the that that statement. Just simply no no way around it. Uh, It's comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. Everything that exists and everything that occurs does so because of the precise plan and purposes of God. Of course, we have to mention Romans 8, uh, verse 28. We know and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So, all things... God is in control of all things, your birth, your life, your food, your clothes, your talents, your economic condition, your position in life, your favor or lack of with other people, your race, your government leaders, even your eternal salvation. All of these things are under God's control. 
Uh, to be a little more precise, we could say this. Every day, human beings as free moral agents make choices that have moral implications. And yet somehow behind them all is this providential hand of God working with, or we say concurrently, through all of those things to bring about His unchanging and ultimate purpose. That is what the Bible teaches. So it's, it's, not, it's not that God is absorbed in everything. It's not pantheism. It's not, it's not a deism where God creates everything, sort of sets the laws of, of nature in motion, but then steps back and never chooses to intervene in our lives. It's not dualism that portrays uh, this battle between good and evil, these, these two opposing but equal forces in the universe. Uh, it's not indeterminism that promotes the idea that certain events are not caused deterministically by prior events. In other words, they're denying any cause. They're just saying things are just sort of happening on their own, independent of any previous cause. But it's not a determinism that destroys man's moral responsibility or his accountability before God. It's not chance. Uh, and it's not, fate, it, it's not fate that denies that God is good or Benevolent, because we're, we're, we're not fatalists. We're not those that believe that our decisions mean nothing, uh, that everything is fixed and our choices make no impact on the outcome. And as Christians, we don't believe in blind chance. Um, we, we recognize the folly of gambling, uh, not because, we, because of chance. We recognize the folly of gambling because of the idea of probability, um, because we know there's no such thing as chance. So we do believe that everything is governed by God. Uh, We do believe that God has already fixed the outcome. Uh, We know this because the Bible teaches that God has purposed things and declared things, and the Scriptures explicitly state that no one can reverse it. Uh, We know that God has appointed every event, but without touching, causing, or being stained by sin. Now, I'm not saying this stuff's easy. I'm just saying we're just trying to take all that Scripture says about it, and we cannot deny the fact that God is in control of all things. We cannot deny the fact that everything that is happening and will happen today. I mean, we'll be able to look back tomorrow. We'll look back on today, and we can say with absolute confidence, God's will was done. God's will was done this day. And yet we know that evil exists, and we know that sin exists. And by the way, Romans 8.28 doesn't say that all things are good, right? It doesn't say everything is good. It says God is causing all things to work together for His good purposes, for our good, for His glory. So God has appointed all these things, and yet without touching, being stained by sin, causing sin, He's not the author of sin, And we know that God does what He does just in time, when He wants and according to His perfect character down to the smallest detail, which is why in Luke chapter 12, Jesus makes this statement in verse 6, "...are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many." sparrows. So God is the almighty creator. He is the, in Genesis 1, he is, we refer to him as, he is the pleased observer. 
as, as he's creating, he's, uh, he creates, and at the end of the day, he says, it's good. It's good. He's the pleased observer, and he and ultimately, though, becomes the displeased judge, right? Genesis chapter 3. He is the one that is displeased when Adam and Eve sin. Uh, he is the one that sets the parameters. He is the one that sets the guidelines, and he not only, uh, not only does God fix the standard, and not only does he choose to withhold or dispense satisfaction, he, that's his prerogative to dispense dissatisfaction or to withhold that. In fact, this is what Solomon says right at the end of chapter 2. For, for who can eat, verse 25, and who can have enjoyment without him, right? I mean, people will, lots of people will eat today, but not all people will enjoy it the way God intended. And that is his gift to us to enjoy these things. And we said there are gifts, right? There are four main gifts that God gave to man in the garden, right? He gave him a place to live, a thing to eat, a job to do, and a person to enjoy it with. And it was all good. (laughs) And guess what we have in our lives today? We still have these basic things. God gives us a place to live, things to eat and drink, work to do, and people in relationships and to enjoy these things. So the problem is not the gifts. The problem is that we fail to realize that God is the one who gives us the satisfaction. That's his prerogative. He says in verse 26, For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But he's also working out his mysterious plan, his will. And every action of an individual can be traced to its source, which is an all-encompassing, all-embracing plan that is administered by God. A plan that embraces every person, a plan that, em- that, that embraces every person in all actions and in all times of life, a plan that is so vast and so eternal and so comprehensive that man is both threatened and exasperated in his attempt to discover it for himself. And yet, because he is built by God and made in the image of God, he possesses a hunger to know the vastness the wholeness, and the key details of the plan. Now, in chapter 3, we, we find this, chapter 3 sort of begins with this poem. It's very familiar, but often mis, misunderstood. In fact, this week, studying this, just reading all the different views on this passage, I mean, some guys are like this, they are just like down in the mouth on this whole thing. I mean, like this is a totally negative thing. What, what Solomon writes here in, in verses 8. Some, some commentators refuse to even acknowledge it has anything to do with God's sovereignty and his providence. Uh, some believe that it has to do with things going on in our life. Some believe that it has to do with God's doings. In other words, this is not really a passage about the events in our lives. It has more to do with the things, the activities of God. Just sort of all over, over the map. Uh, most of you, I think, as I read through that, there's a, there is a familiarity there to us. No, no telling where you've heard this. You, you may have heard it at a graduation. You may have heard it at a funeral. Uh, lots of different contexts, but lots, lots, of different, uh, lots of different views and a lot of mis- misunderstanding about this. But Solomon basically starts out with this in verse 1. He says, There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event uh, under heaven. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the birds, right? Not the B-I-R-D-S, but the B-Y-R-D-S. Would anybody like to sing for us this morning? 
right? There is a season to, to everything, right? Some of you, yeah, you the ones that you're nodding. You have to be probably at least 40s to know this song, right? The young people don't have any idea what we're talking about. Thank you. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven, okay? Um, so Solomon says that there is an appointed time. It's actually a word that's not used uh, very frequently in the, in the uh, Old Testament. It's only found in six other places. Um, all of them happen to be post-exilic uh, books where we find this. It's the only time it's used in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it refers to a definite time. Like um, uh, at 1 o'clock, you know, it's, it will be time to go to lunch. It's like there's a, a specific time set aside for a specific activity. So that's one term that Solomon uses here. Then he also throws in with that the second part of that verse, and there is a time, which is just a general reference or general, general term for that, for time. Uh, it's a, used much more frequently t- over, over um, close to 300 times uh, in, in the Old Testament. And he says there is a time for every event under heaven, which is an interesting word because it can refer to simply an activity or an event but in some cases, it's actually tra- translated in the book of Ecclesiastes itself as delight or pleasure. Uh, so that for every pleasure, for every delight, for every event, for every activity, there is a time. And then in verse 2, down through verse 8, Solomon mentions 14 pairs of opposites and uses the word for time 28 times to press home the point of God's sovereignty and providence uh, as well as man, man's accountability. So the key here is to understand that these are not prescriptions. Um, they are pronouncements. Uh, they are not prescriptions about things we should do. So we don't read this and, and think, yeah, you know, I'm supposed to do this at a certain time and that at another time. It's not really about that. It's it's really a pronouncements about the fact that from God's perspective, God is the one who orders all aspects of a person's life and actions. So Solomon isn't telling us how to order our activities or when to perform the events that he lists here. And he isn't merely describing what happens in life. He is describing what God has deliberately planned for us. He is describing those, these, these events as part of our existence, but also making the point that the creator of all things is the controller of all things. The creator of all things is the controller of all things. That life is not one of chance or fate, uh, because despite the arbitrary or the random appearance of things, because let's be, let's be honest, as we look around in our lives and what we experience day to day and week to week, there does seem to be, a, at, at times, just it seems to be haphazard. There, there are times when it's like that happens and then this other thing happens. We're trying to figure out how does this work, right? So even though there's, there is an appearance that things are arbitrary and random, yet Solomon is making the point that God alone is in charge of nature and history, a fact that honestly should only upset those who wish to be their own, you know, their, their own God over their life. So it, it, it is this drawer that we don't want to open. For a lot of people, it is that, okay? They don't want to think deeply about these kinds of issues in life. 
Uh, in fact, these kinds of questions and these kind of, kinds of issues drive them bananas, honestly. Um, but it shouldn't be for the, for the Christian. We, we should see what Solomon says here. We should live by it. We should embrace. And there's certainly some lessons to learn, especially as we move down through uh, from verses 9 down through verse, there's verse 15. So, for all the affairs of life, God has set a time and the length of time. So think of it this way. God has set a time for, for all the activities, for all the affairs of our life, and he has established the length of time or a season for everything, and he has set the particular events along that time band where each event is established and ordained in the providence of God. Uh, it reminds me of... Um, uh, passage over in First uh, Peter chapter five, where Peter's talking about. Of course, it's in the in the context in uh, Peter, First Peter. The whole the book itself is about the issue of really suffering. Um, but he makes this. You you've, you've, you're probably familiar with this passage. He talks about being humble. God is a you know God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. It's the old, the quotes from the Old Testament. And in verse six. 1 Peter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And when Peter says that, what he's saying is that if you could take your life and if you could, if you could just draw it out as a line, okay, you're moving along this line, that there is a, and the, and the word that he uses here is, there is a point that God has determined to deliver you. You're to humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that he may exalt you in that time, that specific time. The problem is, and this is, the, this is what we deal with, right, in suffering, is that we don't know when that time is. <laughs> we don't know if that's tomorrow. We don't know if that's our death. I mean, death would certainly be a deliverance, right, from our suffering. So we don't know when that's coming. And so we just have to constantly humble ourselves under God's hand, under his sovereignty, under his providence, under his goodness, and realize that he is going to deliver us, but we just don't know when. In fact, this is the most common question in the Psalms. It's not why are we suffering, it's how long, O Lord? That's the question. Oh, I can suffer. I can, in fact, I can endure an incredible amount of suffering if you'll tell me that it's going to be over on Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, you let me know that it's going to be a short period of time, then that sometimes that'll, that changes my thinking. But we don't know that. And so we have to constantly submit ourselves to God's wisdom in these things. So God has established these times. He has established these seasons. And, and in the seasons themselves, he has established every event and activity along that timeline in his in his providence. Now, what are some of the things or what are the, some of those events in our lives that the plan of God encompasses? He gives us a number of these. Verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to die. Again, he's already brought up death in the previous chapter, uh, the day of our being born and the day of our death, our birthday and our funeral. Okay, our birthday and our funeral. Um, God is in control of these things. We like to think in our day and age, folks, that we are in control of these things. More and more and more, man is trying to seize control of these, of these, of these aspects, right? We're trying, in fact, we're, we're at a, we're, that's just why I think Jesus is coming back. Uh, he could come, come today, John. You think he could come today? He might come today because I'm just seeing the, 
I, yeah, I mean, I see the things where man is just like never before trying to get into these areas where God has explicitly said, that's my territory. That is my territory. But we're not in control. Uh, I thought about the four Marines this week killed by a gunman on Thursday in Chattanooga. One of the victims was, a, was Gunnery Sergeant Tommy Sullivan, three tours of duty, uh, a two-time Purple Heart recipient. And yet it's a mystery to us how a soldier can survive so many threats overseas and in combat and then lose his life at a naval operations center in the United States. That's like... Where, where? I mean, where does that come from? I mean, you, you go over there and you and you survive and you survive and you survive, and then you come back to home. You come back home, and you lose your life. But again, it just just it just shows us that there is a time, there is a time for these things, and God is in control of these things. Solomon makes this point: we were not in control of when we arrived, and we are not in control of when we will. Depart, And again, this is something that drives men crazy. Drives men crazy. Then there is a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Even, even the life of fruits and vegetables is set in God's plan. Part of his providence. Everything must come in its appropriate time. We understand this, right? You don't plant a crop in the middle of winter. Uh, it's, you, you're, you're not going to get anything. If you do that, I mean, there are these seasons, these times, God is the one that has established these things. And even in those, uh, those types of areas in our life, those, 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 those other areas of, of agriculture and, and science and, and astronomy and all of that, we see God's, God's hand. Uh, there is a time to kill and a time to heal. Think about this. The same farmer that raises the lamb will one day kill it. So there's a time when the farmer is taking care of the lamb and he's protecting it and he's nurturing it and he's feeding it, but there's a time when he takes its life. But for different reasons, right? We're doing this here for one reason. We're doing this here for another. There's a time to sew up, a time to heal a wound. There is a time to inflict a wound. I love what uh, Charles Swindoll said. This is in his, uh, his book on Ecclesiastes. He says, quote, Life seems somewhere strangely fixed between a battlefield and a first aid station, between murder and medicine. There is the mafia in one part of our world and a missionary in another. Sometimes they appear in adjacent columns in our newspaper, and we are forced to deal with those opposites, killing and healing at the same point in time. One article tells about a murderer who took someone's life in savage cold blood, and there's another article on the same page that tells about a miracle drug that will help you to live much longer. So we see these, we see these again, these, these opposites, these extremes. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's a literary device is what Solomon is doing. It's sort of like that Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. By, by saying that, what Moses was, was getting at is that there's these two opposites or extreme things and everything in the middle. So God, he's not saying, not certainly giving us all the detail of everything that God created. He's saying God, in the very first verse of the Bible, God created it all. And that's sort of what Solomon is doing here. He's giving us these sort of extreme things to say, there's a time for this and that and all the stuff that goes on in between. 
and in transition. Solomon continues, there is a time to tear down. There is a time to build up. And then intimately connected with these examples in verses 2 and 3 are the sorrows and the joys that accompany these kinds of various, these, these various events. There is in verse 4 a time to weep and a time to laugh. Sometimes we do these minutes apart, <laughs> right? I mean, one minute we're crying and the next minute we're laughing or vice versa. Uh, sometimes I was thinking, even driving here this, this morning, I was thinking there's a counselee that I need to apologize to tomorrow because I met with this couple last week. And, and sometimes my emotion, that, you know, I'm talking to people but I just know that my, whatever, my emotion, whatever I'm communicating, is not, it's not fitting what they're experiencing. They're, they're being all serious, and, and they're like pouring their heart out. And, and sometimes I find myself like I'm about to laugh. And you think, man, that's pretty callous. And it's like, no, no but what's happening is a lot of times, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very sad. It's very sad. I'm so insensitive. It's interesting, though, because a lot of times when they're telling me these things and they're being so serious, what I'm getting, I'm getting excited about the fact that they're actually beginning to think in biblical terms. And so I'm, I'm almost like rejoicing inside about the way that they're beginning to perceive life from, from a biblical perspective. And sometimes I have a hard time keeping it in. And so it's like, uh, yeah, I guess you could call it that. <laughs> But I just thought about this one guy that it was a really, really heavy discussion this last week. And there was this time where I just, it just kind of popped out. I could not contain it. But I just smiled. And I could tell that when I smiled, he was not liking the fact that I was doing that. But he didn't say anything. And I thought, I just need to go back and tell him that it's mixed. It's mixed. I'm grieving over where they are. But I'm rejoicing in where I know they're headed because of the way that they're thinking now. So we need this, right? I mean, James says there are times when we're laughing that we ought to be mourning. Let your laughter, James 4, be turned to mourning, right? And there's times when we're mourning and grieving, but we need to be rejoicing. So we need both of these things, both of these extremes. You heard, you heard about the pastor who left the pastorate after 20 years. He was a counseling pastor. Um, left the pastorate after 20 years, decided to work as a funeral home, a funeral director. Somebody asked him why he made that change. He said, well, listen, I've, I've spent 12 years trying to straighten out John, but he never did get straightened out. And I spent 14 months trying to straighten out the marriage of the Montagues, and it never did. And I spent three years trying to straighten out Susan, and she never did get straightened out. But he said, now when I straighten them out, they stay straight. <laughs> All right. Anyway, moving on. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time, the word is lament. There's a time, there's a season of lamentation in the life of a Christian. In fact, in the life of anybody. And then there are times to dance. The the word in the Hebrew is to leap or to skip about. They translate it as as dance or just trying to help us. The translators are just trying to help us to see the, the differences between these two things. Verse 5, there is a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. Now, this is the one that was just off the charts when I went to, the, to, to, to read about these different, different perspectives on this. I mean, one, one guy said there's a time to throw. I mean, you know, we, we, when we hear the term throw stones, we think of, you know, 
uh, he who has no sin cast the first stone. That's kind of what we think about. One guy just went, he went off on that of just, that was his whole understanding. I mean, that there is a time that we ought to throw stones. <laughs> so anyway, I guess he doesn't think he has any sin because, and so he made this big argument that there's a time when we ought to just, yeah, we come down on people. And we, and he sort you know, when he wasn't saying it in a cruel and me, he was saying it, oh yeah, I mean, you know, we're supposed to be encouraging and exhorting and challenging and, and, and it, of course it's for their good, but we need to be willing to throw stones. And then there's times not to throw stones. So anyway, but it really is, it's, it's more to cast stones away. It's, it's not, it's not that you're, th- <laughs> I'm throwing a stone at Mike. It's not like that. It's more of that I'm getting rid of stones. I'm casting away stones versus retrieving them and gathering them back together. So there's, there's a couple, there's several options. We might say there's a time when we cast away and discard what we deem to be useless stones. But on other occasions, there are those same stones may be earnestly sought out as valuable building materials. Like sometimes we, we say those things. I was reminded of that in Kentucky this week because we went to, you weren't there. I'm trying to go with that, Boonesboro. I should know this. I went, to, I went there. Boonesville or Boonesboro or Boonestown. Okay, it's one of those. But it was Daniel Boone's Fort. It was this old, this one of the first, you know, colonies. They had the fort there. We took our, a couple of our kids and visited that. But they have all these, they show you all the artifacts and how they lived and how they made things. And it was just so interesting to me to see, I mean, everything. I mean, things that we would never think are important. They saved and used everything. I mean, they could find a use for it. And it's just because they had so little. And so they would take these things that we would just throw them on the ground and they would turn them into little tools or to make this or to hold that together. Or, and so just, just really fascinating to see that, that they were so resourceful in the, in, in the little that they had. Uh, some commentators believe this may actually refer to the process of removing stones from a field in order to, to prepare that field for, cult, for cultivation. Uh, and the opposite gathering stones for the ruining of a field. And you actually see this in the Old Testament um, where uh, if you were, when you would go into an area and you were going to plant a crop, you would have to get all the stones out. But if you wanted to really tick your neighbor off, you would put stones in his field. Right? You would, you would, it would <laughs> really, I mean, that was kind of like, I'll get you, you know, <laughs> I'm going to put some rocks in your, <laughs> in your yard tonight. Be, coming over to your house. I'm going to put some rocks out there. Um, Tour guides in Israel will tell you that God gave stones to an angel and told him to distribute them across the world, but he tripped right over, over Palestine and dumped all the rocks out there in Palestine. This, is a, this was, I mean, we, we, we joke about it, but I mean, this was a huge problem in Palestine when it came to, to crops uh, and cultivating crops. Uh, it's very rocky land, and farmers had to clear their fields before they could plow or plant. And if you wanted to hurt an enemy, you filled up his field with stones. And we actually find occurrences in the Old Testament of that very thing, where they would sabotage someone's field for particular reasons. Uh, and a lot of these were in the context of warfare. So there's, there's times for these things. There's also a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing a time to, the word is to, to clasp something or someone and a time to not do that. A time to embrace what is familiar and there's time to seek out new things. Verse 6, there is a time to search and a time to give up as lost. 
There is a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a time, the, the word is to preserve and to guard. There's a time in which we preserve and guard something, and there are times where we abandon that. We no longer do that, which gives, of course, biblical authority for garage sales. <laughs> right? 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 Tis the season. Yes, we've been doing it. So there's a time, right, to, to do this. Uh, there's a time, verse 7, to tear apart and a time to sew together. There's a time to rend or to rip the front of one's garment to display grief. And there is also a time to sew that very same garment back together when that problem has passed. There is a time to be silent and a time to speak. There are times when it's best to not say a word. Like when going through adversity. <laughs> uh, when we go through adversity, it's one of those times where you need to, I mean, it, this isn't all, it's not always the case, but what we see, I think, characteristically in Scripture is when we are in adversity, we need to be very careful about the conclusions, right? Very careful about the conclusions we're drawing in times of adversity. So there, there are times when it's best not to say a word, and there are times when it's best to cry out against the evil that we witness, even if it is only to God himself. A silence here could also represent grief. Uh, and speaking, uh, speaking of that, the ending of grief, connecting back to the previous, uh, some of the previous statements. There is a time to love, verse 8, and a time to hate. Um, again, that's, you know, we're trying to think of, you know, what, when is it a time to hate? <laughs> when is that? Well, in God's providence, there are times when people hate other people, and those acts of hatred are a part of God's plan, right? We read about this in Psalm 105, verse 23, speaking about the period of time when the Hebrews or the Jews were in Egypt before the time of Joseph and Moses. So Joseph brings his family into the land of Egypt. They begin to, to multiply, but this is before uh, Moses' time. And this is what this psalm says. It's sort of recounting this history of Israel. And it says about Israel that Israel came into Egypt, verse 23, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused, this is God, God caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries in Egypt. Verse 25, and he, God, turned their heart to hate his people. Wow. To deal craftily with his servants. God did that. God essentially turned the Egyptians against the Hebrews. Why would he do that? Well, if you know the rest of the story, God had a good reason to do that, right? That's what set up the ministry of Moses and the deliverance of God's people, and not just the exaltation of God, but the demolition of all the false gods and the idolatry of the Egyptians, right? So there's a time for that. There's a time for hate. And uh, let's just be truthful, folks. I mean, it's coming. It's coming more and more. And I'm saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't just, yeah, Lord, bring it on. Suffer. I want more suffering. I'm just saying, when it comes, let's just be reminded, God could be turning people to hate us, but for his glory in the end. And, all, and for our good, for our good, for our deliverance. There's a time for war, he says, and a time for peace. And all of these positive and negative activities of life would have 
certainly been experienced by Solomon himself. I mean, could not Solomon, based on what we've read about him in Kings, could he have not just looked over his own life and just made these statements? There's a time for this and a time for that in all these categories because we see all of these things really play out in the life of Solomon, and they're true in our lives as well. So God is the, God who is the creator is also the one who is in control. And then the question comes in verse 9, where is this headed? If God is the one who is in control of these things, where is this going? Because as I said, for many, this, this, these realities are frustrating to a lot of people. But they really orient the way we should be thinking about the way we live. And what he brings us in verses 10 down through verse 15 are some awesome lessons about how to approach life in view of God's providence and his sovereignty. We'll talk about those next week. And then what he essentially does beyond verse 15, all the way into chapter 5, is he brings up the exceptions. He deals with the challenges to his conclusions. So what he's going to do is he's going to draw some conclusions here down through verse 15 about God's providence and God's working in the world and our, in our personal lives. And then he's going to say, now I know, I know you have, you have some questions. What about this? And what about that? And what about that? And what he does is he sort of systematically, he addresses those um, challenges that men might raise against the very conclusions that Solomon brings to us here. So we'll come back next week. We'll primarily focus on those lessons and conclusions and then maybe get into verses 16 and beyond and begin to look at some of the, the injustices, some of the anomalies, if you will, in life that go, wait a minute. I mean, is God in control if this is going on? And he talks about some of those things, some of the very questions we have, honestly, in our lives as we think about God's providence and sovereignty. Joel? Yes. Um, Grace to you. Uh huh. That deals that would, for those that have the time during the week, uh, that would like to uh, have a, a rifle shot at the, at the issue of, of providence. Yeah. And I would suggest if, yeah, scratches you right where you itch, if you're itching. And, another, and, a, and a good resource. And this is probably, Sue would probably, uh, the most com- one of the, maybe the most common resource we use in our counseling ministry is Jerry Bridges' Trusting God. If you have never read Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, get it immediately and begin reading it. It, it is a fantastic, balanced perspective on this issue of God's sovereignty and our responsibility and accountability before God. Okay? All right, folks. So next week last time together here and then we'll be off for essentially five weeks or so uh, and then when we come back in over at the school uh, in September we all those classes promote because that's the typical Sunday that all of our children's classes promote up anyway the, the weekend after Labor Day uh, we'll be picking up right where we left off in Ecclesiastes probably in chapter three somewhere okay all right thanks for your time <laughs>